On August 25th, all across the nation, bells rang out in commemoration of the 400th anniversary of 1619. That was the year the first Africans arrived on a ship in British North America. We know that John Rolfe, he's capturing inventory when they're coming off the ship, and he makes a note that there are 20 and odd Africans on this ship. That is historic, just that little line, um, that <laughs> there are 20 and odd, 20 and odd. And when we saw that, it was like mind-blowing. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, we remember 1619. Not a day goes by when I don't think about, you know, the experiences, you know, of those, those people and what they had to endure. It's kind of haunting. It's a haunting uh, power source for me. You know, I can always reach back and say, okay, this is what my ancestors endured. I'm really their dream, you know, personified. The ship with the first Africans landed at Point Comfort in Virginia, which is now known as Fort Monroe. Terry Brown is park superintendent at Fort Monroe and spoke with me about what this history means to him. Terry, you're superintendent of the National Park at Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia, where the first Africans landed in North America. Their arrival has special meaning to you and your own family. Tell me what you learned. Well, I learned that it's a very emotional process. You know, working in a space like this, you know, sometimes I look out my office and I realize that I'm 200 yards away from the first landing of Africans in North America. And then on the other side of my office, there's a a big open field where the same place they were enslaved was the same place where they gained their freedom through the contraband decision. So it's quite emotional. There's a tree nearby that may be so old, it was witness to the docking of that ship and the disembarking of the 20 or so first Africans. Yes, it's called the Algernon Oak Tree, and I call it the witness tree. Um, When I first arrived here, um, a number of my partners gave me a tour of the park. And when we stopped at that location, and they mentioned that the tree was 500-plus years old, I had to pause for a second and think, wow, that is amazing. It witnessed the American Indians in this space. Right. On these shores, um, they saw them fishing and canoeing. They saw Captain John Smith and Christopher Newport. They saw the first Africans landing here. The largest stone fort in America, they saw enslaved people building that. And they also witnessed the very first black president making it a national monument. Do you ever stop and try to picture what it looked like, what the experience was for those first Africans arriving on that ship? Well, it's interesting. I I remember doing some research, and there was an explorer in 1830. He made a notation that a squirrel could climb from one treetop to another for a 1,000 miles and never touch the ground. That's 1830. And we're talking about 1619 when they show up. You would have to imagine there are no roads, no streetlights. It would have been a very, very different place. We know that these Africans were taken from their homeland in Angola. They were put on a slave ship. And that ship went about 2,000 miles um, until it landed in Veracruz, New Mexico. And it was attacked by two pirate privateer ships, uh, one called the White Lion, the other the Treasurer. 
Uh, they discovered Africans on this ship, and they sort of separated them out. And the two ships made their way up the coast, and they encountered a storm. And the White Lion managed to make it through first. In late August 1619, it anchored at Point Comfort, Virginia, which is Fort Monroe today. And who lived at Point Comfort? Who would have greeted this ship? Well, that's interesting because you know there were Kickatan Indians there. Um, Captain William Tucker would have been there. John Rolfe would have been there. And what's interesting about when they arrive is two of the enslaved were taken into the home of Captain William Tucker. He was the commander of the fort. Uh, Their names were Antony and Isabella. And we know that they would get married, and in 1624, they would have a child by the name of William Tucker. Um, The crazy and most amazing part of this story is that there's a family in Hampton, Virginia, that can trace their family line all the way to William Tucker. So much of the stories of enslaved Africans is not known because people became sort of markers and ledger books. How do we know about William Tucker, this first baby born of the two Africans? Well, there was, there was a group by the name of Project 1619 that's been doing the research on this for 20-plus years. And they have done an amazing amount of research on this topic. We know that John Rolfe makes a notation in his notes, um, he's capturing inventory when they're coming off the ship, and he makes a note that there are 20 and odd um, Africans on this ship. That is historic, just that little line. Um, that <laughs> 20, <laughs> there are 20 and, and odd. odd. 20 and odd. And when we saw that, it was like mind-blowing. John Roth is the sort of the secretary. Uh, he's sort of making notes, reporting back to England. Um, He was married to Pocahontas, if you remember that story. Uh, But he's making notes of all the things that are happening, daily logs. And when he makes note of 20 and odd Africans getting off the ship at Point Comfort, that is a game changer. Other than the man and the woman who gave birth to William Tucker, do we know anything about the other 18 or so Africans who were brought to this area? It's one of the parts of history that's a little vague. I would imagine many of them would spurse out into the colony. They would go up to Jamestown. You know, when the treasurer arrives a couple of days later, it goes up to Jamestown. And Jamestown has, they've basically discovered a remain of one of the enslaved Africans, Angela. Um, and it's fascinating. It's, it's definitely something folks should see. Um, these stories are, they're rich, and we have a lot to learn. I mean, this is just beginning. Jamestown is a settlement called the first permanent English settlement in the New World. That was settled by John Smith and these others in 1607, only 12 years before these first Africans arrive at Point Comfort. What can you tell us about this woman whose body was found at Jamestown? I'm still learning myself. I know she was in the home of William Pierce, one of the wealthy landowners up there. And I think what's important to know is that, you know, in the early days when these colonists are here, they're trying to figure out how to survive. They're trying to discover new resources. And, um, and you know, these Africans that are here they knew how to cultivate rice, sugar, and cotton. And all those things were really important because in the early stages, 
no one was really surviving. We know, I believe it was in 1610, they had about a thousand colonists here. And the next year they were down to 50. They had resorted to cannibalism and everything. But these Africans, they had already knew how to cultivate these things. And it's not until they're here where you start to see progress. They knew how to cultivate the land. They knew how, they knew the religions, the laws. They knew how trade worked. Um, so they were critical to this early exploration. Something else momentous happened in this same spot of Fort Monroe, where the first 20 or so Africans were brought to the New World. And this happened in the Civil War, when a few enslaved men escaped and asked for asylum from a northern general. Yes. In 1850, there was a fugitive slave law, which basically meant that if a enslaved person ran away, then you had the authority to go and get them and bring them back. By the time we get to 1861 and the war breaks out, Virginia is across the water is building fortifications. And there's these three men by the name of Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory. They're told that they're going to be sold down south. Well, they get in a skiff in the middle of the night. They make their way over to Fort Monroe. Now, they don't know if they're going to be shot, they're going to be returned. We know that weeks before that, the Union soldiers are turning slave, enslaved people back and returning them to the Confederates. There's this general by the name of Benjamin Butler, who had sort of been a thorn in the South and the North, in Lincoln's side throughout the war. And Lincoln is just trying to find a place to put him. Well, he shows up, and he is notified that three men are at the gate. He accepts them in. And the next day, a few people show up. By Monday, close to 100. By October, we're talking 10,000-plus enslaved people would make their way to Fort Monroe. And over time, it would be called Freedom's Fortress. That's mind-blowing to think three men who could have been shot were brought into this mighty fortress. And did you say within days or weeks, thousands? Within days, we're, we're talking hundreds, and by October, thousands. Let me picture that. Where were these thousands coming from, and how did they get there and not be shot by their masters? By boat, by train, the Underground Railroad. They were really, really just, you know, you have to keep in mind, wherever the Union was located, just imagine a big light over that camp. So Fort Monroe never changed hands. It was always in Union control. So if you were an enslaved person, you knew that was a place where opportunity existed. It was a perfect marriage. You know, General Butler shows up, and there's the Union over there. It was, it's just a mind-blowing moment because that act right there would lead to Confiscation Act 1, 2, and the Emancipation Proclamation. Should these three men be celebrated as the fathers of the Emancipation Proclamation in some ways? I absolutely think they should be honored and remembered for that. And I don't think they were really thinking in that fashion. They just wanted freedom. They knew they were going to be sold down south. And that's how life is. You never know when you're going to make a change. That's all of us. You know, 1619 is exciting history, but also very hard history. We want to celebrate the accomplishments of African Americans in this country, and these were the first, but also recognize the violence that they sustained over 400 years. What does it feel like for you personally to be working on these memorialization efforts and feel the weight of that history? 
it is so special to be able to bring this to the American people. Um, I think there's a large segment of society that simply doesn't know about slavery or doesn't know what happened in the creation of our country. You cannot talk about American history without including slavery. And to be able to bring that in a way where people can listen to it is, is where I want to go. Just think for this, for example. If I pulled up to a gas station and you was on the other side of that, and I peeked around and I said, hey, let's talk about slavery. Uh, you would probably look at me like I had three eyes. <laughs> <laughs> we, I couldn't talk to you about slavery in the grocery store. But when I'm in this National Park Service uniform, there is an opportunity. There's a trust. You understand the brand. You understand that we do our research. There's an opportunity for healthy dialogue. And I take full advantage of that. And I've, I know that change can happen because I've traveled across this country and I've met people from all walks of life. And I hear people say all the time, well, the other side is never going to listen. That hasn't been my experience. I think people want to know about it. I, I just think they don't want to have fingers pointed at them. And we have to create opportunities where listening and conversation can take place in the same space. You and Fort Monroe have recently commemorated the 400th anniversary of this arrival in a big way. Tell me. August 25th, what we did was we had a healing day ceremony where we invited everyone into this space and we had a national bell ringing. And we had bells ring in California, New York, at the cathedral, in Alabama where the last slave ship arrived. And it was so emotional. And I thought to myself as we were putting that program on, this is a great country because it remembered its history. It, it embraced all the complexities of its history. And I think there's a bright future for us. We also had a archival photo taken of the entire audience. We brought in a drone and it captured everyone there. And the reason why I wanted to do that was so that in 399 years from now, when they turn the page, they'll look and see who was there, who honored those ancestors. Who brought it all home and made America proud? Terry Brown, thank you for sharing this with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care. mentioned William Tucker, the first African-American baby born on British-American soil. Today, William Tucker's descendants remember his legacy and are sharing their history with the world. Producer Melissa Gismondi from our sister podcast Backstory traveled to Hampton, Virginia to speak with members of the Tucker family. This is our birthplace. This is where we came. 1619. So we need to understand and respect all of the contributions that our ancestors made. So, so do you mean the contributions of building America yes. <laughs> without yes. uh, sweat and blood and tears? Yeah, and that yes. just, you know, and starting off here, building the colonies that were getting started. And then over the years, 
uh, what we've done. But uh, this is the birthplace. This is the beginning. And uh, that contributions have started right here. And that, that's significant to me. This is a, um, a gateway to let people know that this piece of history is a very significant piece of, his, piece of history that needs to be recognized and the truth needs to be told. As, as, we, as the stories are shared and as we continue to do research into our family, there are a lot of branches to this tree. And so to hear different stories of, of what happened to our family, bits and pieces, it makes it real. And it's not just us. Uh, we're all the descendants uh, from one family or one branch or another. So to talk about those stories, to hear those stories, sometimes it, it will bring tears to your eyes because it's not just a story that you read in the book. It's your family and things that we endured over the years of, of slavery and those who were free and, you know, the labor that was put into uh, building America. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot more there than chains and you know, treated as savages or things of that nature. It's, it's deep. And this is American history that we like the country to know. This is just not about us. It's American history. They need to know that wasn't talked about in school and it's now, it needs to be reinforced or told. They need to put more emphasis on this piece of history because it's the beginning of the rival. I mean, just how significant can something like that be? It's just... It's inspiring. Not only did it inspire us, but it's inspiring all African Americans to uh, uh, look at their own roots and past and find out the connections that are there and how much history they can uncover. That was Vincent and Verandal Tucker and Walter Jones. To hear more from them, check out the full Backstory episode on 1619 at backstoryradio.org. For Seneca Lofton, the story of 1619 and the stories of Black history in general inspire his socially conscious musical poetry. He's a teacher and a lecturer at Norfolk State University, but in his spare time, Seneca Lofton makes beats and performs spoken word as part of the hip-hop group Black Lion Insurgents. What has inspired you to use poetry and the spoken word to address social issues like racism? Yeah, poetry for me has always been, you know, um, a resistance. It's been like a, a creative medium, like for my resistance and my ability to kind of interact with the world as, as you know, um, an individual like journeying through it's kind of like my my blues or my my jazz there are two pieces in particular that I'd love you to play for us and introduce one is called on this road and the other is chant for Charlottesville yeah I composed on this road you know um, definitely from a, a point of view of you know trying to track my journey you know uh, within American you know society at large and I think it, it definitely portrays you know the resistance and the brilliance you know of people who are just trying to struggle through a particular you know circumstance let's hear that now my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh. 
My spirit's bigger than small visions of loyalty, longer than commitments to country. Too many kings on cracked thrones, too many queens who can't recognize home, too many bullets flying through city war zones. All alone I swing machetes in this wilderness. I walk through the devil's playground, tribal war paint on my face, ideas sharp like razor blades in close encounters. I counter robotic slogans of patriotism, carbon copy declarations of faith, anti-tradition until it becomes tradition. I rebel against the status quo with hopes to climb skyscrapers, liberate self from doubts. Roses born from concrete still grow. Henceforth, I know warriors are built to navigate the weather. It's hard to survive this world. Yeah, it's hard to survive out here, man. Um, yeah, so, you know, On This Road was definitely, you know, a, a, a labor of love, a labor of passion, and a labor of, you know, conviction. Uh, so Chant for Charlottesville was really about, you know, um, identifying with the struggle of people that were protesting in Charlottesville, you know, uh, two years ago now, 2017. And I, I had already intended to write a poem about that, but then it became something else once, you know, I found out that Heather Heyer had passed. So um, that's what Chant for Charlottesville was all about. You dedicated Chant for Charlottesville to Heather Heyer. She was the woman who was killed when she was trying to protest with many others, the armed men carrying torches and chanting racist and anti-Semitic slogans. Let's listen to Chant for Charlottesville. Flip the page, stalk the pavement, pay homage to resistance, burn for tomorrow. In the middle of sorrow, we request a residence on the sun, a suite where rage has a heavenly sound, where misery is fuel for struggle, where a freedom fighter can scream her encouragement for the cause, for liberty, for dignity. This poem is Emma Goldman shaking a radical fist. This poem is Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem. Flip the page, stalk the pavement, pay homage to resistance, burn for tomorrow. She gave her breath to break stone, to crack patriarchy, to spark revolution, to uproot racism, to liberate justice from an American tomb. She was a bomb, a glitch in the heart of system, an empowered wind sweeping through Charlottesville. The change was loaded on its back. Henceforth, hoist the flag of truth seekers. Celebrate the living, honor the fallen, prepare for generations. Flip the page, stalk the pavement. I love the lyrics you gave. She gave her breath to break stone, to crack patriarchy, to spark mm. revolution, to uproot racism, to liberate justice from an American tomb. Ha. Wow. Wow. Just hearing it read back is, is definitely, you know, different, you know. Um, yeah. But I, I, I really just tried to capture what I believe her essence, you know, to be without, you know, necessarily knowing her. And, and poems have that, that, Ability, you know, sometimes you can write a poem from your personal perspective, and sometimes you embody somebody else's experience and somebody else's story. And that was that that what it was what that poem was really about. So I try to bring in all these different, you know, uh, uh, symbols and people. I understand that there is a press in Detroit, Broadside Lotus Press, that is creating an anthology of the 400-year anniversary of 1619 when the first Africans came to North America caught, captured in Africa, and dragged to North America. Um, they've accepted a couple of your pieces to go into that anthology. Tell me about those pieces. The first one, I believe, was called um, for Trayvon Martin, 
Jordan Davis and those who will die tomorrow. Uh, that particular poem was really about um, young black males experiencing, you know, this this really weird experiment, American experiment, where they're they're experiencing not just violence and and problems in their own community. They have to worry about, you know, uh, vigilantism and things of that nature. So once again, I tried to kind of embody those experiences being, you know, a black male and knowing that um, I could go out into, you know, into my day and, and have a problem with somebody. And that gun, you know, being the, the ultimate neutralizer, I really just tried to capture, you know, everything that, that has been happening with um, with black folks, especially in the last you know, few years when it's come to these 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 senseless, you know, unarmed killings. Now that you are in Virginia, you are teaching at Norfolk State University, which is just across the water from where those first 20 or so Africans were brought over in a slave ship off the shore of Virginia. Do you feel their presence Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Not a day goes by when I don't think about, you know, the experiences, you know, of those those people and what they had to endure and everything they had, you know, being encompassed in their minds, you know, their their traditions, their spirituality, um, maybe some of the books they've read, you know, some of the people they met along the way. So really, they were like prisoners of war that were coming over. And so not a day goes by when I'm, you know, at Norfolk State or even at uh, where I'm at during the day. Uh, which is at Chesapeake Bay Academy teaching literature. Yeah, I go to Norfolk State a little bit later on. But at the same time, you know, anytime, you know, I'm, I'm writing or anytime I go into Norfolk, you know, of course that that uh, that sentiment is there and, and that presence um, is there. And it's, it's kind of haunting. It's a haunting uh, power source for me. You know, I can always reach back and say, okay, this is what my ancestors endured. I'm really their dream, you know, personified. Um, and so where I'm at is probably what they were, were believing that generations maybe would experience, you know, as long as they endured, you know. So, you know, you had people who, who fought back. You had people who ran away. You had people who just simply, simply said, you know what, I'm going to raise these children and hopefully one of these, you know, children, you know, um, will be will be free. One of these generations will, will break the mold and break, you know, break the cycle. But I think, you know, like, you know, you, we have to have that awareness. You know, we have to have aware, that, that awareness about, our, about ourselves because we're in a political climate now and, um, reparations for slavery is a talking point you know on the on the political stage and so that's got people thinking and questioning like you know have we really reconciled this have we really repaired the damage you know um, of american slavery especially when it comes to economics um things of that nature so definitely when i go to norfolk state that that power you know is always there and i always feel it necessary you know to bring that into my classroom i feel it's you know, definitely my responsibility to kind of teach that to them, make it make them aware of it and where we are you know as a people going forward Seneca Lofton, what a pleasure. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Absolutely, no problem. Thank you. I took freedom, but I open carry justice. Open up a fast lane and HOV for dreams. Wisdom is a loaded word, especially on the tongues of fire breathers. Prophets who talk about resistance, package struggle, deliver the good news and feed the people. On this road, predators pack heavy. The praise celebrate ammunition like a gift from heaven. Goliath. That was poet Seneca Lofton, also a teacher and a lecturer at Norfolk State University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. I confront dysfunction with chip crown, with bruised knuckles, with rebellious intentions. On this road, I chase actual freedom. Useless ink on paper only protects the ego.
Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. For the rest of the episode, we're discussing the story of Gabriel, an enslaved blacksmith who organized an anti-slavery rebellion in Richmond, Virginia in 1800. Gabriel and his co-conspirators were not successful with their goal of ending slavery. Instead, they were found out and executed, and the state of Virginia instituted a vicious crackdown on black people. But now Richmond's activists and historians are making sure Gabriel's legacy of freedom lives on. One of those community leaders is Anna Edwards, a graduate student in history at Virginia Commonwealth University. Along with Free Egun Femi and the organization called Untold RVA, Edwards has helped bring the story of Gabriel into the public consciousness. Anna, you live in a city that had not just a central role in the American slave trade, maybe the central role. They say that 350,000 people were sold into slavery in a part of Richmond called Shaco Bottom. Is that memorialized now? I'd say not yet. (laughs) And that's because it's in process. This story has been evolving for the last, I think, 15 to 20 years. I think what's happened is that people have come to accept that the history is true, and so now they are startled by the fact that there hasn't been memorialization. And the fact that it's now underway makes people both hopeful and impatient at the same time. Tell me about Gabriel. When was he born? Who was he? Gabriel lived in a time of revolution. He was born around 1776. He uh, grew up on a plantation just north of the city of Richmond in Virginia. And he grew up in a period when the rhetoric of both independence and equality of man was in the air, not only in uh, what would become the United States, but also most timely in Haiti, what was the island of Saint-Domingue in the Caribbean, This was a French colony that was one of the most wealthy, most profit-producing colonies in the New World. And it was in complete rebellion, led by a man who most schoolchildren know as Toussaint Louverture. And at that moment, he was actively proclaiming that, not unlike the French Revolution, uh, that this rhetoric of the equality of man and the right to liberty was a human right that all people should claim. And the entire colony was in rebellion. It was a rebellion that lasted 14 years. For Gabriel specifically, or for Virginians, the year 1800 was the year when the rebellion was at its height. Toussaint Louverture, as general of this rebellion, had control of the entire island of Saint-Domingue, which means the French and the Spanish uh, governed uh, colonies. This is an incredible kind of inspiration. And because of that, Politicians, especially when they were running for office, liked to throw around the fact that they were terrified that black people would take inspiration from Haiti. When was the Haiti uprising? It began in 1791. It finished in 1804. So Gabriel was 24 years old when he planned an extensive uprising 
in Richmond? How extensive? Um, many historians calculate the figures to be between 500 and 1,000 in the Richmond uh, and sort of central Virginia area, and that there were people who were in the know that could have numbered as many as two to 5,000. Sometimes people take it all the way up to 10,000, but I think that's just people getting excited. Tell me about the rebellion itself. Gabriel wasn't just planning to get out of here. Hey, guys, here's my plan. It was a plan to end slavery. That's right. That's right. It's really important to understand that. It's also important to understand that Gabriel actually wasn't the originator of the plot. Uh, There was another man, and um, his name is not preserved in the same way. And I think the point has been that there were several people who came together and decided this was a thing to do. And Gabriel had a certain, he had certain advantages uh, and a certain charisma, uh, one that was, you know, uh, leaned towards leadership uh, capacity. And he was ultimately actually elected, according to the testimony. He was elected by his fellow conspirators to take that leadership role. And from that point, they referred to him as General Gabriel. Were they from his same plantation? Many of them were. His two brothers uh, were on the same plantation, um, but there were adjacent plantations from which many of the others came. But in addition, uh, Gabriel was someone who spent time in the city of Richmond, uh, usually on hired contracts uh, to work for other people. So that gave him both mobility and access Um, One of the most common ways to get access, aside from just encountering people on the street, was being able to hang out in taverns. And there was a time in Shaco Bottom when taverns of the working classes were a little bit more permissive about having blacks and whites uh, drinking together and talking together in the same space. Um, But also, if you think about it, um, the Haitian Revolution was the biggest news going Uh, at that time. And it was the kind of thing that would be talked about casually. And so the inspiration of that, but also what that represents in terms of the way people gathered, is the fact that there's there's a network. It may be an informal network, but people are accustomed to getting and passing information uh, in these uh, these face-to-face encounters. So they're taking place for Gabriel and his conspirators in town, but also in the secret spaces uh, where they might meet. Such as? Brook Creek was one of those places. So secluded um, along the waterway and um, a place where nobody would, uh, would be bothered with eavesdropping. It's just hard to imagine people getting word to thousands of people on disparate plantations and coordinating a single day, a single Hour. It's remarkable. Um, it was, and apparently it took place over the course of about six months. Um, and, you know, the only thing you can do is, is try to understand how things worked on a daily basis in the 18th century. And the fact that there's a lot of coming and going between plantations, a lot of coming and going, because that's the only way right. to get news information uh, and, frankly, conduct business. Tell me about the rebellion itself. What was the plan? Yeah, the night of August 30th, the plan was that there would be basically three groups um, that would make their way to Richmond. One group would go off to the warehouse district and set a fire in order to draw the militia. Another group would head to the armory, which at that point was housed at the state capitol, and they would collect arms. And the third group would come in and they would um, 
meet up at a certain spot, uh, now fully armed and with the militia fully distracted and head towards uh, the governor's house, take the governor, who was James Monroe at that time, and take him captive and negotiate with him for the end of slavery. It's fascinating. They are mirroring the founders and their own revolution against England. That's right. It's that simple, or should have been. What happened? What thwarted them? Um, a storm and betrayal. Huge storm. Enormous storm. That kind of storm that um, just opens up and washes roadways and fills creeks and basically prevented them from moving. At the same time, there were two in the inner circle who um, changed their mind and decided to tell their owner that this had happened. Basically, the, those who were going to regroup uh, in order to carry out the rebellion when the storm subsided um, realized that they weren't going to be able to do that. And so basically it, um, it dissipated. People just either didn't show up or began to leave uh, the area because they knew that uh, they were going to be identified. I've read that Governor Monroe ordered a terrifying crackdown on African-Americans in Virginia. Yes. He ordered the militia... And he also deputized uh, more and more men into that militia. Um, yeah, it was devastating because not only for those who were actually arrested uh, and then put on trial, but also for those who would incidentally uh, pay the price for simply being nearby, being enslaved, um, knowing the people who were accused of being involved um, or just simply didn't uh, were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, the crackdown was really quite tremendous. Um, and I believe that they estimate that somewhere in the order of at least dozens of people um, may have lost their lives and certainly suffered some consequences as a result of that, uh, of the wide scale um, persecution uh, in their attempt to find the people who they believed were responsible. Um, and this is really the order of the day uh, for enslaved black people at this time. This kind of tactic used to terrorize them into, you know, staying close to home and not participating in these things or into simply paying a price so that they could show white society that they were still in charge. What did Thomas Jefferson, who was running for president at the time, write about or say about the thwarted uprising? He indicated to the world that the executions that were taking place uh, were beginning to be seen as revenge as opposed to justice, and that he recommended that Governor Monroe put a stop to them. How many men were killed? Twenty-six. I'm so struck that one of the men, before he was hanged, apparently drew a comparison between himself and George Washington. He said, I have nothing more to offer than what General Washington would have had to offer had he been taken by the British and put to trial. What a comparison to the cause of the revolutionaries. It, it really reflects probably, in some way you could call it, the original sin of our country. People were quite clear and quite aware of the rhetoric that was in the air, of the ideals that were being fought for, and the very stark reality that it was intentionally not going to be applied to people of African descent. And it was not going to be applied to Indians either. And this is the kind of realization that we have to face in order to understand precisely why the country is in the struggle that it's in right now. 
you know, you're talking about Jim Crow and the codification of this idea that African-Americans are inferior to whites. You would think that in a couple of generations, though, the white people who felt that way or were brainwashed to believe it would have died off. And that now only the people still alive who might be inclined to hold that view would be a problem. And yet, Two years ago in Charlottesville, it was mostly young men with rifles and assault weapons who Mm -hmm. came to assert white supremacy. Racism has not gone away. And our country's history has sustained it. And one of the areas uh, where it was most um, potently sustained was in our education systems. And so you have generations of people to this day who pass on what they understood to be the truth from their education so that even young people today have an interpretation of history that uh, secures them in the identity that they were raised with. What do you mean? Give me an example of the kind of schooling. I thought children nowadays were celebrating Black History Month, were honoring Martin Luther King and other legacies of more recent review of history. Sure. Um, You can do that in February. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also, I think it's important, you know, when we say nowadays or we say, uh, you know, recently and we say young people, these are young people who were born of their parents and their parents, um, you know, were educated in an earlier time. And people carry forward their beliefs, especially if it sustains them again in their belief in who they are. Um, And, you know, to be very specific, um, one organization that very specifically affected education, in particular in the South, but not exclusively, was the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who took it upon themselves uh, very early in the 20th century to ensure that textbooks in schools told the narrative of the South in the way that they thought or they wanted uh, to ensure people would adopt. And it gave a very sanitized version of slavery. And it spoke about black people as if they were children and spoke about the benevolence of whites as though they knew best in all circumstances. Um, And this is a very, these are actually very simple, a simple delivery of profound racism that was delivered to children in their most formative years. And then they grew up and raised their children. It's very difficult. uh, And whites who have gone through transformations of recognition about the way that they were educated will talk about how very profound that was for them to realize that they had been educated in that way and to have had to experience, um, you know, real life and engagement with real people in order to find out uh, that they had been miseducated. And one of the things that um, I, I do talk about this a lot in, through different venues, through giving historical tours. I actually work at the American Civil War Museum, and I give guided tours of the house that's known as the White House of the Confederacy. In essence, in that way, we're on the front lines of giving information to people who are coming to a place that they, many, have traditionally seen as a shrine to that Southern narrative. And we are telling 
more stories. We are giving more context to what happened there. And we are speaking truth to that narrative. Edwards is a graduate student at Virginia Commonwealth University and chair of the Sacred Ground Historical Reclamation Project in Richmond, Virginia. The work of people like Anna Edwards has already made an impact in Richmond. One person who had a life-changing encounter with the Gabriel Memorial is the poet Joshua Poteet. I learned about Gabriel from one of the state markers on Broad Street near Broad and 15th. Anna Edwards made sure that that was put up there. Like She was one of the main people that wanted that to be there to mark the area, which was pretty brilliant. Poteet was so moved, he wrote a sequence of poems inspired by Gabriel's story. Here he is reading selections from Letter to Gabriel, written in the margins of murder ballads. This is called Letter to Gabriel, written in the margins of murder ballads. And there's an epigraph from Gary Lutz. Here's a story in the worst way. I have no business being anywhere in it. It comes between me and the life I have coming. Blood of my abyss, a legible voice, was the morning kind. The cold dawns here, steaming through. I imagine you in a field across the river, floodplain attic, lichen brailed thin on the pump house door. You are dead in the gallows and not dead. A rope cannot claim you. It is another century. Things are not better or worse. You came without a horse and left us human hair on the tulip tree, strange among the blossoms. For years we weren't terrified. We carried around your death, its severity. The terror lasts, your grave a wide field now. But I never thought of it as something separate. There's no other way to say it. I was built by slaves. Carved skin, white pine like sand and tobacco, and the potete name that pulls me from you. Say the words the fields would speak. The bloodline stops here. All the sleeping poteets, all their skin impossible to see, all their land and gauze light, all the asphalt and rain between us, all the kerosene on the carpet, kudzu weaving doors shut, all great-great-grandfathers gutting pigs, all great-grandmothers throwing sand on the blood, all industry siphoned, all selves creek-banked collapsed, all plantations a coffin, a little vandalism, the whole family haunted. I've played the slave narratives in abandoned places, among the candles and cinder blocks. Silo, dirt, house where the vultures live, all to bring you back. There's a shopping mall where your anvil stood. I bought socks, a button-down shirt, and sat in the parking lot listening to the corroded wax cylinders, disintegrating dialects, becoming a column of air anyone can pass through. I never deserved to hear them. When the highway came, the houses didn't know enough to be afraid. Leeway and ease, night comes through the gutters loose as fever. 
I don't believe there is an answer, honeysuckle blooming the creek gut. There are tunnels leading up from the river, dug before the war, torch ends grating in their cups, history averting into the cellars of abolitionists. This is not what I mean to say to you. Everything is unfinished, momentary. It's not anyone's fault, I know. We're all strangers to the middle of the noise. There's only one year, and it repeats itself forever. Forfeit the dead grass, the rim of dandelion and mortgage. Forfeit the factory where their marrow is pulled. Forfeit taxonomy, the legalese of the law office, windows at sunset, so many heretofores and to wits. Forfeit foreclosure, the vacant lots, stairs leading to white grass and sunlight, where houses were sewn together now gone. Foundations, the absence of ruin is just as quiet, non-being where was being remains. I have never been hungry. You invented hunger and handed it to the owl, 200-year-old crime scene tape slung from the bridges. What should the new map look like? Help me, moonlight. Bring the granary to the sky, burnt yellow call down. The night that took you will take us too. Joshua Poteet is a poet based in Richmond. He spoke with former With Good Reason producer Kelly Libby. Virginia Humanities has partnered with the 2019 commemoration American Evolution to help mark this historic year. This program was made possible in part by a grant from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation as part of its Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Initiative. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Kelly Libby of Unmonumental, Melissa Gismondi of Backstory, Steve Clark of WVPM News in Richmond, and Todd Washburn from WHRV in Norfolk. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.